This is the Out of Water Podcast. Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith. I will be your host on today's episode, and joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Great to be here. Awesome. And we are going to be coming in for a landing on the life of Abraham. Well, not an entire landing, but we're coming to the end of his active life and ministry. And so today, going through two chapters, quite a bit of quite a bit of territory to cover. We're going to be talking about the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah, and his attention to make sure that Isaac takes a wife. Uh, jumping straight in, we're in Genesis 23. This is right after Genesis 22, the famous chapter where you have Abraham being told to sacrifice his son. We talked about that last week. He's come out of that triumphant way. It proved that Abraham is a man who believes thoroughly in a God of resurrection. He looks at his son and he knows that God's promise will triumph over whatever circumstance, and he knows if God has told me to do this, he's going to raise Isaac from the dead. And so you're given a picture of the the faith of Abraham being awesome, which leads right into Genesis 23, where you have this heartbreaking moment where his wife dies. Um, and to say that they had some struggles in their marriage. <laughs> Casual. Which, yeah, I mean, he's had some downer moments, wouldn't you say, Will? Yeah, especially related to Sarah. Yeah. I mean, she felt them the most. Yeah. So, I mean, you go through, I mean, first starters. Remember, he when he goes down to Egypt, he tells her, you know, tell them that you're my sister because if they know you're my wife, they might try to kill me. And so Pharaoh takes her into the harem. Shameful moment for Abraham. Then when it seems like Ishmael is going to be, you know, that's another one. He takes Hagar over Sarah to have a child with at Sarah's request. But even still, like, come on, dude, like you got to turn down that request. (laughs) But then he also, with Abimelech, he allows Sarah to be given over into his harem, like bad moments again and again. And then when it seems like Ishmael might be the son of promise, you have, and and God coming saying, no, I'm going to do it through Sarah. You have Abraham not thinking through Sarah's feelings. It's like, no, 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 Ishmael's fine. So it's like at every turn you get like this is the how not to be a husband mm. manual. You know, it's it's pointing you to a bridegroom who will be willing to die for his bride, who will always keep the promise, right? And it's it's Jesus that it's pointing you to. So you have this picture of marriage that's rough all the way through his life, and it's not sadly. It's in the death of Sarah where you see Abraham do something really pretty awesome toward his wife. It's, a, it's actually a beautiful gesture that now that he is somebody who firmly believes in resurrection, and we've seen that in Genesis 22, you get the picture that by the end of their life together, Abraham finally got it, and he's a much different husband. Or at least that's the way I read it. Let's jump right in. Verse 1, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. So she had she had some some more gas in her, but when when Isaac is born, she's ninety. 
So when she dies, he's 37. So he's, he's a grown man. He still doesn't have a wife and you get the impression. He's very much a mama's boy trained up and he's still unmarried at 37 years old. He does not have a wife, which would have been unusual in the ancient world. So Sarah's old. She died at Kiriath Arba, which is the city of Hebron. We know where that is today. You can go and you can visit it in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went down to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. So, you know, this is the first time where you see Abraham heartbroken. You see the emotion and the fact that he weeps for her. He did love her. You know, he mourns for her. Then Abraham rose beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because one of the things that skeptics for, for a long time actually argued was that this was a verse that disproved the Bible, that there were no such people as the Hittites. That was an argument for a long time. And then that got disproven with Egyptian history where the Egyptians went up against the Hittites in a battle uh, much later than Abraham. So they said, well, well, the Hittites existed, but they didn't go, go back, back that far. as early. And then archaeologists discovered the capital city of Hattusa, and we discovered all of their libraries, and, and they're a very ancient civilization. And that's just one of those, another one of those many, many stories where archaeology catches up with the skeptics and overturns their arguments. So the Hittites existed. We know they did. Uh, the Bible is reliable here. So Abraham arose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger among you. Remember, Abraham lives in tents. He doesn't buy property and build palaces. He says, sell me some of your property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, sir, listen to us. You're, you're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. And one of the interesting things about this is you get the picture that the Hittites are like, don't don't get in his way. Yeah. They, they recognize that he's favored, even though he doesn't have a capital city. You know, most kings back then, they called a particular city their, you know, kingdom. He doesn't have a city. He's roaming around. He's living in tents, and yet they recognize there's, there's a, this man has a city somewhere. You know, he's royalty over something. The Lord, you know, the God of heaven clearly shows favor to this guy. So here, bury your dead in your choice. Take any of our tombs. We're, we are not about to get in your way. We don't want to be on your bad side. Here, please take it for free. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites, and he said to them, if you're willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah. So now this is interesting, and it, what, what, it starts getting specific. Abraham has a particular location that he wants to bury his wife because it's like if you have a dead person and you're a nomad, you got lots yeah. of places. Like just pick, pick a spot. Yeah, <laughs> Who's a lot of desert know? out there. Yeah. <laughs> but he has a specific place in mind. And so he says, I want you to go to Ephron, the son of Zoar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him, and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price of a burial site among you. In other words, I, I don't want charity. I'm not looking for a handout. I'm not coming to you to try to coerce you to give me something. I want to I pay full price. So Ephron was sitting among the people, and he comes to Abraham in the hearing of everybody who's there at the gate of the city. And he says, no, my Lord. Listen to me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it, 
I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. And again, it's like, you remember how Abraham wouldn't take any gifts of, of the people of Sodom? Sodom yeah. yeah. Well, the idea is I'm, I'm not indebted to you. I don't want to be indebted to you. And so he says, no, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay you the full price of the field. Accept it from me so that I can bury my dead there. And so Ephron answered Abraham, like, listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what's that between me and you? Bury your dead there. Like, hey, you're, we're like family. Just I don't want your money. They don't want to be on Abraham's bad side. They want to help him. He's gotten the favor of the people. But Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms. He won't take it as a free gift. He weighs out the price that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight among the merchants. So Ephron's field and Mechtala near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the midst of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterwards, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field at Machpelah near Mamre. Notice the repetition here, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites for a burial site. And if you're exhausted, yeah, <laughs> just watching you, I'm telling you, everybody who's listening has just tuned out for the last three minutes, right? Yeah. Like you're reading all these names and okay, shall you buy it? No, you can't. You, you don't have to pay. Oh, I need to pay. No, don't pay. Yeah, Just oh, a bunch of guys trying to out gentlemen each other. You're like, oh my gosh, yeah. somebody pay somebody. <laughs> it's like being at the, at the restaurant. No, 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 I got it. I got it. That's what's happening here with this place but in it it's all this repetition of no it's got to be the cave at mactella macpella near mamre near mamre near mamre and the reason why this is beating into your head like why otherwise it's an entire chapter of precious scripture that's saying all right let's haggle over some land and it seems weird that the scripture kind of downplays Abraham's mourning and weeping for it. Like that was yeah. real quick. It was like yeah. Abraham wept and mourned and then he went on to yeah, get a business transaction. Like it just seems awkward <laughs> if there's not a purpose behind this cave in this field, because in this moment, it just seems like Abraham's just like moving on back to business. Wife's dead. I'm going to wrap her up real quick. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And so this is what's beautiful about this. This isn't random. And it's pointing again, just like Genesis 22 was an exclamation point on the faith of Abraham believing in the power of resurrection. This is actually a beautiful picture of Abraham's faith in the resurrection. You say, what are you talking about? How All so? Right. <laughs> Go back to Genesis chapter 18. And we're told, remember that when the three beings come up, two angels and the Lord, and they confront Abraham. Okay. And it's like, you know, Sarah has been forgotten at this point. Ishmael's mm-hmm. growing up. Everybody's assuming that Ishmael's going to be the son of promise. And it's the first, God shows up and says, where's Sarah? Remember that? Yeah. And he's like, oh, she's over there in the tent. And of course, Sarah's like, listening. you know, listening in and like, what's going on? Got her what's ear going in on? a cup. And God comes and says, no, no, no. It's essentially what he's saying is it's not going to be Ishmael. I'm telling you that I'm going to make good on my promise. Sarah is going to have a son by this time next year. And remember what Sarah does? She laughs. She laughs. Well, all this is taking, it says in verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre hmm. while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And so when Abraham is thinking, okay, we had Isaac, God made good on his promise and God is preserving Isaac's life. And Isaac is eventually going to lead to a descendant who's going to do what? 
I mean, it's a gospel. It's not oh, yeah, a trick yeah, question. Okay. What would you say? Like, okay, Isaac's going to lead to a descendant, ultimately, who's going to accomplish what? The true resurrection. The true resurrection, right? He's going to be the one who conquers and comes and crushes the head of the snake, and he's going to defeat death. And on the morning of the resurrection, this is what I think is cool, and this is where I think Abraham's heart is. He wants her first waking sight to be the very place where God came and said, Sarah, I'm telling you, I'm going to make good on my promise. Mm. I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. Death is going to be overthrown. And though Sarah dies, she's going to wake up in the very place where God gave her that promise at the trees of Mamre and the cave of Machpelah, looking out over this field mm. at the place where God said, I'm going to defeat death through your child. I mean, that's essentially what the promise was. And here Abraham's like, that's where I want her to be buried. Wow. That's, and so he believes in the resurrection. The whole reason why Genesis 23 spends so much time talking about the importance of haggling over this specific location is that's where God gave the promise to Sarah, and she laughed at him. Mm. <laughs> on that morning, on the morning of the resurrection, she's going to wake up and laugh and triumph. Wow. Everything will be yeah, full made circle. right. So I love that chapter. It's one of those chapters where when you read it, you're like, why is it telling us all this? Yeah, you're like, let's go. But it's showing you Abraham believes in resurrection. He really does. And so if you go to the city of Hebron, modern day, you can go to a place where Herod built this gargantuan structure, the tomb of the patriarchs. And here at that location, there are caves and burials underneath that where you find, we believe, the burial location of Sarah and Abraham. Both of them were buried there. The next generation, Isaac and Rebekah, are buried there. And the next generation, Jacob and Leah, are also buried there at the tomb of the patriarchs, still to this day, in Hebron. So, kind of fun fun fact. There you go. Go check them out. Yeah, Hebron is one of the... Did we a, go to Hebron? No, it's a, it's a little sketchy. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so, when we're over in Israel, like most of the places we go, you feel absolutely 100% safe. Not a couple of them. Well, yeah, you're right. The well wasn't great. <laughs> That's not gunfire. We promise. Yeah. Those are fireworks. <laughs> they're just celebrating with yeah. gunfire. They're, they're, they're not shooting. I, meanwhile, we're going into a place with bullet holes all over yeah, the wall. It's like a huge wall and metal doors with bullet holes. And you're like, fireworks. You're totally safe. Come on in. Anyway. But really, you do. That one, I will admit. That was the one place where I was like, uh, you know, I want to drink the water. And I still have video of Morgan yeah. wheeling up the bucket. Nothing like Morgan. Yeah. So that's Will's wife, by the way. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but that place was everywhere else. You feel totally you safe. You felt safe inside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once you were there. Yeah. <laughs> it was but just on the bus. Totally <laughs> safe. But Hebron was one of those places where it's like. Mm, I mean, that's why it's off the new list. Yeah. We, we, don't, we don't go there. You got edited out. Yeah. <laughs> So, but if you were to go there, you could, you could, you could go to the tomb of the patriarchs. I'm good. I'll it just trust that they're there. You can see pictures. Just Google, yeah, yeah, Google, Google images. <laughs> <laughs> and it gives you the map of where they've discovered everything. It's, it's pretty cool. All right. So I had a panic moment of not pressing record again, which I did. Okay, good. I always forget like, yeah, I should probably always just like click this record just in case. Now that'll probably screw this up. No, it do, you can do both. Come on. Technology. I doubt, I doubt it. <laughs> you're just fearful of new technology. I'm, total, I'm, I'm Amish. Yeah, you're, you're going backwards. To revert. 
I don't everything everything new I learn about technology, I'm like, I want nothing to do with it. We should Chat. have Chat GPT just uh, write an episode for us and we should just read it out loud and see if people know. They would know. Are you I don't know. You think Chat GTP could G, Ed, I guess they don't have enough inf- maybe they do. We've done enough of these. Do you think it would well, go mine all of our stuff? I think. I don't like Chat GDP. I don't either. Whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. GPT, 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 GT, whatever. Ford Mustang. Now I found a new thing where if you're taking tests online, there's some new app that like shows you the right answer. It yeah, it takes your test for you real quick. My high schooler showed me that for math tests now, I'm like, how do you guys cheat on a math test? Like we couldn't have cheated on a math test. We actually didn't know the math or you had to know the exact answers. But this one, they don't need that. They just hold their eye. F- Should I even say this online? Probably Should I be helped? No, parents, you I need to know this. I don't check know that there's phones. any high schoolers listening to us. That's true. So parents, if you have a high schooler, <laughs> check their phone for this app. Because if so, your kid's cheating. <laughs> what is it? It just takes your camera and you just put it over the math problem and it solves the math problem. Oh, that's not good. That's bad. That's I don't see. I don't like this anymore. Like I don't like the deep fakes and the fact that they can make you look like you're saying stuff and imitate your voice. And yeah, there's enough getting too good. There's enough of real of us out there saying like not great things (laughs) (laughs) like things that could be questionable. So now I don't need fake will out there saying bad things. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I'm already cancelable all all by myself. Yeah, just naturally. Uh so anyway, we're like reverting to the Tower of Babel, I feel like. I don't like, That's I don't true. like where we're going. I, I, I'm ready to go Amish. Let's start a revolution. Yeah, we should get some like... As we're nah. using our computers and And this is getting culty. What I just was about to say out loud was a cult. <laughs> yeah, you'd be... There you I was going to go Utah. I was going to go ranch. And I was gonna, <laughs> no, that's just a cult. Yeah. We would be cult leaders then. Oh. All right. Like so, a good cult. Do you think you could ever have a good cult? No. Well, isn't, I mean, a cult by definition is, you know, you're isolating people from families and manipulating them to the truth and no, no. blocking off. If you took out all the bad parts of cults, which you just said. Which is like Acts 2 then. Yeah. Well, that's not a cult. That's the church. We could stand to look a lot like that. Okay, then, yeah, more culty than that. You're right. Okay. <laughs> I rescind this conversation. Yeah, but like, we're way off topic. But in Acts 2... Like when it talks about how every day they're meeting together, every day breaking bread, and it's like a daily thing, you really do get the impression like they they do life next door to one another. Yeah, it seems and New York City like to me in that mindset, like much more. You could yeah. walk there. Mm-hmm. Okay, but like where we're at now, everything is thirty minute like drive. Thirty minute drive. Yeah, like if I forget my keys, I don't even want to turn around, and or I guess I wouldn't forget my keys. My phone, I don't want to turn. Yeah, around. I don't. I live the day without the phone. Yeah. But if it was like neighborhood, and if you you've been over to Israel, you see how small the houses are. Like you, you can't help but you're know trying your to get out of there too. <laughs> like they're trying to be like, let's go somewhere other than this small hot yeah. home. Yep, true. That's yeah. You want community events. That's just why to get Jesus was house. always going somewhere else to pray. <laughs> like where we go indoors for privacy, they're like, no, we got to get out of this house yeah. and we got to go to a mountain. Yeah, air conditioning would have killed the first century church. Like they're they're like, can we go outside, please? Yeah, like we, let's go walk with people anyway i don't there was no reason we got there (laughs) all right genesis 24 genesis 24 um so what happens now we transition sarah's dead remember she dies at at 37 and or i'm sorry when isaac she dies when isaac is 37 and so now abraham is old 
He's well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. So it's it's basically we got one more chapter before Abraham is is checked out, right? Genesis twenty five is when you get to to his death. Twenty four is like his. This is going to be his legacy, but now he needs to find a wife for Isaac, so that the the promise of the seed can carry on. So he said to his chief servant and his household, and you remember. His chief servant is Eliezer, who was one of the people that was in the line. Remember, first it was going to be Lot, and then when Lot left, it was going to be Eliezer, and God comes and says, I'm going to give you a kid. And he's like, well, I was planning on giving it all to Eliezer. Well, that guy now has to go give a wife so that there's someone for Abraham to give his stuff to. Remember, he's he's been in the line to get all the stuff, Hmm. and then he lost (laughs) that spot because of Ishmael and Isaac being born. And do you think Abraham in this moment is trying to make sure Isaac isn't like him in the long run? Let me explain that. Like getting advanced in years and not having someone to give, carry on your legacy. Yeah. Not having a son. Because he's looking at his son, if he's 37, which he's got to start. Yeah, he's got to start be, being like, oh, I don't want you to be like me in the 70s, 80s. Like I had a wife and I couldn't have a kid. Mm-hmm. So like you, you're missing step number one of this whole childbearing thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's really pretty remarkable to me and stunning actually that they allowed Isaac to get that far, to get this old. Like he's going to be 40 when he gets married. Like in our generation, you know, the age of your marriage, first time getting married <laughs> is, is older and older and older. I think it's like 28 or 29 now where it used to be in the early 20s. In the ancient world, you got married in your teens. Like you, when you became a man, it was like, okay, next you get married. You, okay. you, you did that earlier. And so to be this old and unmarried is shocking to me just culturally. But then beyond that, for Abraham to know that the promise of salvation for the world is dependent upon Isaac having a son to let him get this old is shocking. Or maybe, you know, here's here's something that just occurred to me, oh, some no. heresy alert. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe it's in Abraham's mind that, okay, this is the son of promise. Uh, maybe Isaac is the one who's going to redeem the world. And so he's not thinking of another seed. Like, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I don't like that hot take. <laughs> but it's out there. Yeah. Like at some point, because all you have is the promise that one, one of your descendants is That's going true. to you know, be a blessing to all the nations on earth. Abraham hasn't, doesn't have that mapped out like, oh, and it's going to be God in the flesh and he's going to die on a cross. Like, yeah, I guess none of that's that true. Yeah. So Abraham is might. I mean, you got to think all the way back to Eve. Eve had to be wondering, is it going to be Cain or Abel? You know, that one came out pretty, <laughs> pretty early on. <laughs> but every generation has to be wondering, huh, yeah, is this is new this- pregnancy going to be the salvation of the world? Because they don't have the definitions that the prophets later give that's to true. that savior, okay. they're going to come and say, "Oh, he's going to die, and by by his suffering, our iniquities are going to be, you know, forgiven." Abraham doesn't have that, so maybe that's why he lets Isaac get so old. We don't know, but he's old. He's old. <laughs> he's old. So he says to his servant, and this is a a very weird thing that they did in the ancient world. Yeah, you're going to explain this, right? No, what if I should I just leave it out there? Yeah, let people he, think. He said to his chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had. Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but you'll go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. So everybody's wondering. This is the ancient like spit shake. (laughs) 
Yeah, this is this is the this is weirder. Shape. This is like uh, the the double pinky. What is that called? The pinky promise. Pinky promise. You know, this is far from the pinky promise. Yeah, so this, let's be clear. This is a very very uncomfortable pinky promise. So put your hand under my thigh. It's an invitation to say I'm entirely vulnerable to you, and I I want this oath to be something that goes beyond just surface. Like this is very deeply personal. And so I'm inviting you in to the personal. What do you think about that? I don't. I think it's. I'm fine with it. It's not like that weird. Like it's. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's weird. But it's weird to us. They did a lot of weird things back then. But I get it. If if I put my hand under somebody's thigh and they said something, I take it pretty seriously. <laughs> I think. Truth. Like for me to put your hand under my thigh. I'm, gonna have to be pretty like i'm gonna do what you say because that seems like a weird thing just to like do there's there's also an ancient jewish interpretation that i think carries a lot of weight it was by a rabbi i'm looking for the quote but i can't find it as we're recording but it basically said like when it says the thigh throughout scripture a lot of times the loins are translated thigh to try to clean up the bible so now this takes the this whole process and goes whoa yeah that's different i want to take back (laughs) so but what, where that's coming from is, what is the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision. And so it's it's literally like, this is where the covenant's coming from. And by the way, I'm sending you out to find a bride to carry on the covenant to future seed. And so there's a rabbi who, so take it or leave it. If you're too, if you're too uncomfortable for that, then you can leave it. But the idea is, um, this is deeply personal. And you're swearing on the future of our household and our covenant with God. I'm just trying not to say anything stupid. Now go for it. No. Please comment on that, Will. Nope, I will not. Why do I have to be the one to say this? Nope. <laughs> All right, so odd covenant. You know, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear to me that you're going to go back to my country. Now, what does that mean? Remember, Abraham, when he's 75 years old, gets called from the land of Haran. So he's saying, I want you to go back to Haran, and I want you to get a wife from among my relatives. And here's kind of the the reason for that. Like the Babylonian culture, the Sumerian culture was not like super, you know, advanced and ethical, but they were light years ahead of the Canaanite culture. It would be like, you know, if you if you look at the ancient Roman world or the ancient Greek world, the closer you got to empire, the more elevated their ethics were, the more enlightened their philosophy seemed to be, where when you went outside of there, you you found barbarians and people with really primitive kind of ideas. Well, the same thing existed in the ancient world. If you were in the Fertile Crescent, in the Mesopotamian region, you had the influence of Babylonian culture and Hammurabi, and which came later, but you had the influence of those cultures that had advanced a little. When you left there and you came out to the Canaanite cultures, it was like the barbarians. Okay. You know, you were situated between Babylonian culture, Akkadian culture, and Egyptian culture. Those were advancing. Canaanites were seen as primitive. And so Abraham's like, these people kill their, kill their kids. Hmm. They're doing crazy stuff around here. So I don't want you to take a wife from among them. Go back to Haran, where things are a little bit more cultured. They're a little bit more advanced in ethics. And I want you to get someone from there. And the, still shows Abraham's matured. Yeah. You know, still yeah. faithful. You know, last couple of chapters, we're, we're tracking good here. Mm-hmm. He's going to end well. Yeah. So, but that also shows that it could be another reason why Isaac's, 
you know, creeping up on 40 years old without a wife. It's like, well, look who he has to choose from. You yeah. know, the, these are not somebody that's getting dad's blessing. So that makes sense. He's being protective of his son. He's being yeah. protective of the future seed. That's right. So you, okay. you want someone. And so now that you've gotten this old, nobody's shown up and Abram's like, okay, we got to do something about this. Yeah. And it also could be because mom is gone. And like every dad, he's like, I can't care for this kid. We need another woman. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need someone in his life. And he's like, I'm going to die. And I don't want Isaac just to, maybe Isaac doesn't understand the promise like Abraham has. You know, he hasn't lived the life and he wants Isaac to make the right decision as a father. He's like, I'm going to make that for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think that's good. I think that's very good because we, all of us need need to mature we need before guidance. we really come to value the promise that we have, right? Yeah. Like it takes life and failure and growing and learning. Yeah, Abraham's like, it took me <laughs> close to 100 years. <laughs> that's true. This guy's only 40. He's got no chance. That's right. So verse five. The servant asked him, what if the woman's unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure, Abraham says emphatically, make sure that you do not take my son back there. I don't want him going back to Haran. This is the land that God has given us. I want him to stay here. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and native land and who spoke to me and promised me, you know, saying, take your offspring and I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And here, just notice Abraham's faith. God didn't tell him this. You know, we don't have any record of that. But Abraham totally trusts, look, God is invested in the seed that's to come. He will sovereignly guide you to the right person, which is pretty remarkable faith. Verse 8, if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So then this servant, which he's really kind of the main character of this chapter, and he's unnamed, but we believe it's Eliezer here. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master, and he set out for Aram Naharaim. Now, what's wild about this is this is hundreds of miles. Oh, wow. Not, not pleasant territory. You know, you're, you're going through desert kind of terrain when you get out to the east. But he's got these camels, 10 of them, and he's making his way there. He had the camels kneel down. <clears throat> he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time women go out to get water or to draw water. Now, this is something that you find all through ancient cultures. For whatever reason, it was the women's job to to get the water from the well. And so one of the things that you'll find through Scripture is the well is like the prime dating spot. Like if you're, you know, like we have Match.com or whatever dating sites we have. In the Old Testament, you had the well. Just go to the well. <laughs> and you'll see it again and again where you'll see Isaac's wife is found at a well. The love of Jacob's life, Rachel, is found at a well. You get to to Moses, and he meets Zipporah at a well. Boaz, you know, is ingratiated to Ruth by sending her to his well. Like, this is going to be a prime spot. When We'll see when you get Jesus. We'll also meet someone at a well we'll talk about later. Um, but this is setting up a pattern that you're going to see again and again through the scriptures That's that's really profound said he had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time women go out to draw water. 
Then he prayed, oh, Lord, he's going to put this completely in the hands of God. He says, oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside that spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. He sees that this is starting. He says, may it be when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. So he's he's basically saying like, okay, God, like lead me to the right one. I want the first girl that I say to, hey, can I have a drink of water? That they say, sure, here's some water, but here, let me also water your camels as well. Because that would take a while, right? Yeah. This what? is kind of a big ask. We don't even understand how big of an ask this is. Okay. Like. To give you a drink, not a big deal. Like, a, sure, a scoop, yeah, here's, you know, a cup. Here, here's a drink of water. But a camel drinks 30 gallons in a single setting. That's so, not one bucket pull. <laughs> yeah, that is not one bucket pull. And how many camels is he coming with? Ten. Ten camels. And so 30 gallons a sitting, 10 gam- camels, you're pulling up 300 potentially, 300 gallons of water Oof. that this person has just brought camels hundreds of miles they're looking for water. They're thirsty. And so I did the math on this. If you pulled up 300 gallons of water, that's a total of 1.25 tons. Wow. So we're talking 2,500 pounds. And this woman's like, sure, I got you. You relax. Here's some water. Let me get the water for your camels too. And by the way, with no, you know, it doesn't say that there's a prospect of marriage or anything. It just shows that she's outrageously kind. And this is actually something that's a really, you know, it, it sounds, you know, terrible for a man to be like, yeah, you know, go ahead and go ahead and do this for me. But what he's after, what he's seeking is it shows, you know, it has nothing to do with external factors. It's not looking at, at beauty or wealth or status. It's revealing a heart of humility, a heart of kindness and generosity. So she sees a weary traveler and she's like, oh. Let me do that. And it's a it's an enormous Herculean task that she's doing. And so when he says, God, I want this as a sign, <laughs> that's like, you know, in an ordinary world, a hundred times out of a hundred, nobody's gonna be like, Oh, let me pull up three hundred gallons of water for you. Yeah. You know, bucket by bucket by bucket by bucket. So this is an a, a divine sign. But guess what? Boom. Here she comes. May it be when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink that she says, drink and I'll water water your camels too. Let her be the one you've chosen for your servant, Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master, Abraham. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, who is the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please, give give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, so she's volunteering this, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So it's not like, hey, let me give them a little drop so that they can make it in a, another yeah. couple of miles. Like they're they're free to drink until they refuse it. Oh, wow. Like she's 
she's going the farthest imaginable distance. And what makes this even more, like you think, okay, is she desperate? No, she's very beautiful, we're told. She's a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She would have been somebody that everybody would have sought after, would have desired, and yet she's kind and humble and generous as well. So the picture that we're already getting of Rebecca right out of the gates is she is stunning, beautiful, inside and out, like wonderful person. So this is where now we transition to the the New Testament And this is one of these stories that everybody knows, but it actually finds its roots here in the passage that we're drinking today. So you remember the story of the Samaritan woman coming to the well? You you just said the passage we're drinking today. Did I just say that? Yeah, you did. It works. We're drinking the passage. Yeah, we are. We're We're feasting, right? Yeah, living water. (laughs) So anyway, in John chapter four is a very famous passage where Jesus is going through Samaria and he goes to a town called Sychar. It's the place where Will was saying he was very uncomfortable on our Israel trip. Yeah. <laughs> the bullet holes, the gunfire. Well, what, what big it's deal? not my fault. I was raised the way I was raised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was eager to get inside as well. So anyway, it says Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, right? Now listen to this. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? All right? So now if, you're, if your mind is trained to, to see the patterns of the Old Testament that everybody's finding their brides at a well, you know, Isaac's bride, Jacob's bride, Moses' bride, we, we bent through the pattern, right? So now Jesus meets a woman at a well. What it's saying and what it's tempting your brain to see is, is this going to be his bride, Right? And, oh, look, he did the same thing that Abraham's servant did. Will you give me a drink of water? And so somebody who's of great character, somebody who's like a bride worthy of Jesus should say, hey, not only will I give you a drink, but, hey, let me water your camels also. But it's intentionally telling you this story. I think God ordained the details of this story to set the Samaritan woman against the original prototype who is Rebecca. Now, remember, Rebecca is very beautiful, and she's a virgin. Mm-hmm. What's this woman like? Not a virgin. She's definitely, definitely not a virgin. She's had five husbands, I'm and the man. one she's living with now is not her husband. Is not her husband. She's an outcast. She's not very beautiful. She is. She's sent away. And one of the crazy things about this story is Jesus starts asking her the question, will you give me a drink? And they have this long conversation And Jesus is saying, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink, and I would give you water that wells up to eternal life. But the woman never gives him a drink, right? Have you ever noticed that in the story? Honestly, no. (laughs) So he comes. His first question to her is, can I have a drink? And he never gets that drink. Never gets it. She even leaves a water jar behind, so no one got a drink. (laughs) She she forgets her own water jar because she's satisfied in him. But what's cool about that story is it's another point that, you contribute nothing. Like Jesus comes and says, can I get a drink of water? She never gives it to him. <laughs> you know, that blows me away. Huh. And so the, the, the typical, the type of bride that we see with Jesus, right, is the anti-Rebecca. It's the bride. It's the church, right? The mm. bride of Christ is the church. And you think about a Samaritan woman. What's a Samaritan? Half Gentile, half Jew. So it's a church of all races. It's shame. It's somebody who's given their heart to anything and everything to find fulfillment in a moment, but it just leaves us shameful and empty. And Jesus comes to share grace and, and living water. And he, while he would love to get a drink from us, 
<laughs> you know, we, we leave him hanging. And yet he doesn't say, well, you never gave me the drink. So yeah, clearly, have it. clearly you failed the test. So, I mean, if it was Eliezer, he'd be like, well, she didn't water my camels. So she's not the one. Mm. Jesus doesn't even get the drink, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and yet he extends grace to her and she's representative of his bride. Um, and so what's going on in this story is setting up that tension of what Jesus is going to face because we are no Rebecca as a bride. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all of his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring. Those were a thing back then. Did you know that? I'm looking at ESV and it just says gold ring. It's a, it's a nose ring. Okay. So, But there's also other jewelry going on. But even if it's not a nose ring, in other passages you find nose rings in the scripture. So that's pretty cool. It feels like that's a modern. I don't. I don't. Sorry to everybody with a nose ring, but I'm. I'm. I guess I was just Gen X, like when you just didn't do that. Like it was seen as a really countercultural demonstration. Like Hmm. my sister in law has a nose ring now, and I'm like, what? It's it's cute. (laughs) Yeah, but I just I can't get there. But I'm anyway. I'm old and boring. I guess. But anyway, they had nose rings. So Rebecca liked nose rings. She's Isaac's wife. Looks like she's got a big one. (laughs) Half a shekel seems like a solid nose ring. That's right. Stretching out her nostrils. So anyway, weighing and two gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels. So why is he doing that? Hey, I'm coming from a guy who's got lots of money, who is a great provider. So he's, he's trying to catch her eye. He then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of the, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. So the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord. Now, why in the world is he acting like this? He's just heard, this is family. Like not only has God brought me safely to Haran, not only has he given me a woman who was willing to give me water and then water my camels as well, but when she tells me whose family she is, she's from the family of Nahor. That's Abraham's brother. So this is like I've hit the jackpot. You know, we, we don't think that way in modern terms. But back then it's like, hey, Abraham's going to be thrilled that we found somebody who's of the same customs. So... The man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran home and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban. Let's pause here for a moment. Laban's a scoundrel. Mm, When we, we ever get to the life of Jacob... Laban is going to be somebody that you find is a schemer. He is tremendously greedy. He's always trying to advantage himself. And you get the first taste of that, actually, in this story. So Rebecca has a brother, Laban, who's going to be Jacob's uncle. And he hurried out to the man at the spring. As soon as he saw the nose ring, notice that. Ooh, gold. And the bracelets on his sister's arms. Mm, This guy must be wealthy. And he heard Rebecca tell what the man said to her. He went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Oh, come, you who are blessed by the Lord. Why are you standing out here? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So he's all in like, 
this guy's wealthy. He will give us a great dowry for my sisters. Surely what he's thinking. So the man went to the house and the camels were unloaded. Straw and fodder were brought for the camels and water for him and his men to wash their feet. So lots of hospitality. The food was set before him, but he said, hey, whoa, whoa, I'm not going to eat until I have told you what I have to say. So this guy, this servant is so faithful to Abraham. He's like, I'm not going to enjoy any privilege until I get to my master's business. There's something to that, by the way. So Laban says, well, well, then tell us. He said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master abundantly, and he has become wealthy. He's given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, men servants and maidservants, camels and donkeys. My master's wife, Sarah, has borne him a son in her old age, and he has given him everything he owns. And my master made me swear an oath, saying, You must not get a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites in whom, whose land I live, but go to my father's family, to my own clan, and get a wife for my son. Then I asked my master, What if the woman will not come back with me? And he replied, The Lord before whom... I have walked, will send his angel with you and make your journey a success so that you can get a wife for my son, from my own clan, and from my father's family. Then, when you go to my clan, you will be released from my oath. Even if they refuse to give her to you, you will be released from my oath. So this guy's like taking careful notes. (laughs) He's he's rehearsing this. So when I came to the spring today, I said, Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will, please grant success to the journey on which I've come. See, I'm standing beside the spring. If a maiden comes out to draw water and I say to her, Please let me drink a little water from your jar. And if she says to me, Drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one the Lord has chosen for my master's son. Before I finished praying in my heart, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder She went down to the spring and drew water, and I said to her, Please give me a drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, I'll water your camels too. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. You see how he's rehearsing lots of repetition here? It's like almost like, all right, we already did this. Why are you repeating it? Yeah, but it's nice honesty in Genesis, I feel like. Mm -hmm. I feel like for the first time, we're getting just a clear-cut story of someone doing what they're supposed (laughs) to do, when they're supposed to do it, how they're supposed to do it, and no one's being swindled by anything yet. It's true. Like, he's obedient and faithful. And he's not trying to trick these people. He's like, I'm going to tell you exactly why I'm here. (laughs) There's no tricks on here. Just complete honesty. I love it. You you know what this the parallel is here. I do not. I mean, you got to think about this. Think Where would this fit? If you're trying to make a gospel application here, you have the father who sends the servant to go to the far country to find a bride for the son. Hmm. You hear it? It's evangelism. No. So here, you, I mean, what, what is evangelism? But God the Father who comes to his servants and says, I'm going to send you to the distant nations to go find the bride for my son. And the way that God hmm. brings a type of him in this servant is somebody who does exactly what he's saying, He's totally obedient. He's not He's not trying to coerce them or invent some clever arguments. And he does not take personal privilege when he's trying to win a bride, right? He's just coming on the master's business saying, this is what I was told. This is what the proposition is. I take no personal advantage in it, but I'm here because I love my master and I want a good bride for his son. And when we... And Eliezer, whoever the servant is, as long as he does that faithfully, 
it's not the response on his end that matters. That's right. Which is cool. Yeah. What does Abraham do? He says, if they don't come, it's not on you. You're, you're cleared of the obligation. Yeah. You have the obligation to go, go but where I tell you to their go. Mind. But it's not hmm. up to you to win a bride, right? You just go and present the proposition. Yeah. Right? That's good. It's the son of promise. Like we we're, we're looking to fill out the bride, the, the capital C church for the son of promise, right? And we're called to go to the distant countries to do so. So he's finishing the story. He says, she quickly lowered her jar from the shoulder and said, drink and I'll water your camels too. So I drank and she watered the camels also. And I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Nahor, whom Milcah bore to him. And it's like, good grief. Like, it's just pause, repeat. <laughs> Same story. Then I put a ring in her nose. It's a nose ring. And the bracelets on her arms. What does your translation say? Does it give you the nose there? Which verse are we in? No, you're not even paying attention. Yes, I am. <laughs> We're just rehashing a lot of details. We're in verse 47. Yeah, it says nose. Then I, so we got nose rings going on. Nose rings confirmed. So approved of the Old Testament. This is Abraham saying we got to get some nose rings out there. So I guess I'm wrong. My my preferences of no nose rings. Abraham would disagree. Yeah. So wow. If you're giving weight somewhere in the Bible, you would never had a wife then. <laughs> True. I barely. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> Moving right along. What? Where are we at again? So okay. Forty eight. Then I put a ring in her nose and bracelets on her arms, and I bowed down and I worshiped the Lord. Like, gosh, this guy's awesome. Like, he might be the best character of the Bible so far. Like, sure. Everything is faithful. Everything's obedient. (laughs) And when God, like, he travels, whatever, 700 miles to go find a bride, and when she says, I'm from Abraham's family, he bows down and worships the Lord. Like, he's sincere faith. He worships, he's obedient, he loves his master, he's not in it for himself, like he's just, he's good people. And that I prayer like to God, guy. though, was like, hey, God, it's been a long journey, can you just make this one more? <laughs> yeah, give me like, a Please, I'm give me something. Totally trusting you. <clears throat> I praise the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, which is interesting that he calls him that, too. Like, rather than my God, it's the God of my master, Abraham, even though he's praising the Lord, he recognizes that he's under authority, which is interesting. Who had led me on the right road to get the granddaughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will, show kindness and faithfulness to my master. Tell me, and if not, tell me, so I may know which way to turn. Like, is she available to be a bride for my master's son? So Laban at this point, remember this is Rebecca's sister and Bethuel, her father, answered, well, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca. Take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has directed. Now, what's interesting is when they use the word Lord, it's Yahweh. So it's using the covenant name of God, yet we're pretty sure, we're almost certain, they don't worship Yahweh. Okay. This servant has come now. Remember, Abraham left and was like, Yahweh has called me. So they're polytheistic. They're like, okay, great, Yahweh. It's another Whatever, God yeah. on the shelf. The servants come back and has been like, Yahweh has blessed my master abundantly. He's tremendously wealthy now. And so when they say, this is from the Lord, we can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here's Rebecca, take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. They're not saying, hey, we're in with this covenant with Yahweh. They're just recognizing this Yahweh is one of the gods out there, and he's powerful. So they're like, okay, 
here's Rebecca. Take her and go. Would have been a great ending right here. Yeah, but we have more. <laughs> we should just, and we're done. <laughs> Verse 52, then when Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. So he's worshiping again. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. But her brother and mother replied, oh, let the girl remain with us 10 days or so. Then you may go. Mm. And here's where you see, like, again, the faithfulness of this guy. He said to them, do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so that I may go to my master. And they said, okay, well, let's call the girl and ask her about it, which is interesting in the ancient world. This would have been uncommon, I think. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? And so she has a say in this. Interesting. Even though it's an arranged marriage, ultimately she's the one making the decision. Hint, hint. Cool. Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. Then Rebecca and her maids got ready and mounted their camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out in the field one evening to pray, which I love this about Isaac. Isaac is, you know, probably the least representative of the patriarchs, but he's the most faithful. Hmm. And he has the the least screw ups. He has them. But here it's like the servant's been gone. He's traveling hundreds of miles. He's gone probably months. And where do you find Isaac? He's so excited about a bride that he's never met face to face that he goes out into the field in the evening to pray, to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Man, he can't, he can't wait. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? You get, just, you get the impression. You know how in the story of the prodigal son, the father's just waiting? Yeah. Just and watching. He, sees, he runs out. You get that same sense here with Isaac. Like, he doesn't know who the bride is going to be, but he totally trusts God with it, and he is overwhelmed mm. with excitement to where he's out in the field praying and just watching. And when he sees her, what does she say? Who's the, who's the man in the field coming to meet us? Like, he's, he's darting after him. And the servant says, he's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, which is in the ancient world, that's a sign of nobility and virtue, um, and that you're under the covering of a father. You're, you're not yet to be seen by other men. Then the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. It's the first time that word has been used in marriage here. He loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And that's the end of the chapter. Beautiful. How do you feel? I feel great. What do you think about that? What's the takeaway of this chapter? I like Abraham still faithfully preparing for the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And I think the analogies this week looking forward is fascinating because Genesis pushing us towards the New Testament, even for our modern day of evangelism and Jesus at the well is just, I mean, it is a beautiful book. One of the things about this passage that 
hits people wrong is, you know, you have Isaac who's never laid eyes on a bride. And you got to think, Eliezer, it's 800 miles. I just looked it up. It's 800 miles to go from the beginning of his journey to get Rebecca, and then 800 miles back from Haran to get back to Isaac. So if, if he picked a woman where Isaac's like, hmm, you're like, I, I, I don't like her, or she gets there and is like, I can't stand him. Everything in our modern sensibilities looks at arranged marriages and says, that's wrong. Yeah. Like, that's absolutely wrong. But here's, here's something that's fascinating. In the Bible, the bride of Christ is viewed as an arranged marriage. Like, you are in an arranged marriage with God. And that's the way that this story has been told from the beginning. Like, you look at Ephesians. He chose us in him from the foundations of the world. That you, you're, you're purchased with a price. There's a dowry paid for you. You, though you haven't seen Jesus with your own eyes, you've heard of him, you you know him, you read your scriptures, but there's going to come a day where you see him face to face and God has arranged a marriage with you, though you've never met, that's going to go on for eternity. Like your story with Christ is an arranged marriage, like you see in the story with the servant going and saying, hey, you haven't met my master's son, but let me tell you about him. Mm. You want to be with him. <laughs> like here's here's some of his wealth. Here's some of his attributes. Here's some of his goodness. Do you will you come back with me? And she does. She's willing to come back. And here's another stat that you will be surprised by. I think you're going to be surprised by it. I don't think I will. All right. Fifty five percent of all new marriages in our world today are arranged. Yeah, it's a little shocking. <laughs> but when you think about it, the population densities. Yeah, you go to India, India, China. So places where you will find arranged marriages throughout Africa, they're there. And here's what might be even more shocking. Okay, so we're shocked by the idea that we're in an arranged marriage as much as we hate it. That's the way the scripture describes our relationship with Jesus. Of course. It's an arranged marriage. The next shocking thing, 55% of all new marriages today, arranged marriages. But here's the, the thing that blew me away. In cultures where... They have arranged marriages. They actually prefer them. Hmm. So a 2013 survey conducted in India found that 82% of young women between the ages of 18 and 35 preferred arranged marriages over self-selected marriages. Hmm. In India, 84% of marriages are arranged, and it boasts one of the lowest divorce rates in the world. In 2020, less than 1% of Indians who had ever been married had experienced a divorce where in the United States where all marriages are self-selected, the number is 34%. And so now there's cultural norms and things like that that play into that. But when they did studies of people in arranged marriages in the United States, so take the culture out, they found that people that were in arranged marriages in the United States had happier marriages than those in self-selected ones. Wow. What do you do with that? I I don't know. So here's here's the father. Your parents know what you need better than you do in the moment. Hmm. I think I think that's one of the things when you look at the scriptures. And I'm not advocating, by the way, for arranged marriages. <laughs> but I'm sitting here thinking, okay, in the Old Testament and throughout Why? all these yeah. ancient cultures, there are arranged marriages. And then you look at the polls, and they seem to do better than self-selected marriages. And it's interesting to me that your parents, your father and mother, we look at them and go, what do you know? 
They yeah. they know you better than yourself. <laughs> you know, they know what you need. They know the type of person you need. And so in that study, 2008, 357 married couples living in America, and it found that arranged marriage couples had, quote, significantly greater marital satisfaction, end quote, than those living in self-selected marriages. So there's something to that. Are you weirded out? Like if, if your parents had arranged your marriage, would you protest? Yeah. <laughs> but now having a daughter, I think I get it more. Yeah. Would you want her to pick or you to pick for your daughter? I don't know. She's only seven months. <laughs> Just a weird conversation. I look, see, I look at Leah. And would I, you? Oh, man because it's cultural like it just feels you know like we're not allowed to say yes like oh my gosh that's yeah also i don't want to be on tape saying yes patriarchy yeah whatever but i do feel like her mom and i yeah i would need other expert opinions i don't want her to end up with somebody who's abusive or selfish you know like gross and there's something about a parent they really do no better for their, like, I, I'll tell you this, like a lot of my destructive relationships that I had before becoming, coming to Christ really could have been fixed if, if my parents had determined who I was allowed to date because I, hmm. you know, a lot of really wonderful people, but we weren't right together. I don't think they're I'll listening just, to this. I'll be honest. I'll just I don't that. think your ex-girlfriends are on our listens. <laughs> uh, but so there's something to arranged marriages, but I just, I wanted to pause there yeah, because it's it's one of the first ones where you actually see the arranged marriage taking place, and it is the it is a metaphor for the entirety of redemptive history. God has made a people and set apart a people and purchased a people for an eventual wedding to His Son, and it's entirely arranged from the foundations of the world. So we cannot be really hostile to the idea of an arranged marriage and love the gospel. Never thought of it, but it makes sense now. All right. So chew on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now Isaac and Rebecca have come together and we're going to find as we move into the life of Isaac now that some really wonderful things happen and a lot of very, very familiar echoes start coming into play in Isaac's life. And we're going to pick up on some really, really brilliant themes in his life and then Jacob to come. But we will join you next week on the Out of Water podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.